so much for being with us again this morning. And uh, if you're expecting me to turn to Genesis 34, I did. <laughs> I was going to say I decided against it, but it was because we're running up to Easter, so there's a really good reason for it. But you can read Genesis 34 and you can see why I'm leaving until after Easter. Anyway, um, we're going to be looking at Matt, some, some studies about this, our Saviour's earthly ministry leading up to the resurrection between now and Easter. And we start this morning with Matthew 26. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 26. In a, in a few moments, we'll read 10 verses, 36 to 46. As I said, we're beginning to look at the final days and hours of our Saviour's earthly ministry leading up to the resurrection, which we'll reflect on together on Easter Sunday. So if you're visiting, come back at Easter and hear the, and hear the, the, the final sermon on this. But we'll be thinking about the events beginning with the Gethsemane, Matthew 26. Every serious believer, I would admit, I think, as we come to the account of the, in the Gospels of Gethsemane, that we are standing on holy ground. And in a way, even reading it and praying about it, we feel like trespasses, in a way. It's, such, it's so sacred, it's so holy. Like we're eavesdropping on a moment that's too holy, too personal for our profane ears. As Jesus leaves his disciples behind him, and in agony, he throws himself on the dirt and cries to God, as the horror of what is waiting for him at the cross begins to open to his view in a new way. And there's a, solemn, there's a solemnity and a gravity to this moment in the Gospel accounts that is surpassed only by the events of the cross itself. So, and so if we avoid coming to this passage carelessly, we need to stop and pray and ask the Lord to meet with us and to help us. So I'll pause before we read and I want you each to pray silently and just ask God for ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Would you, would you, do, would you do that with me? Would you just, in the silence of your heart, pray that God would give us the ears to hear what he is saying. Pray for grace. Not just to know the truths that are taught, but to feel the power of them. And pray for a fresh sight of the love of Christ that you cannot help but turn from every competing love to love Jesus more. Let's turn to the Lord quietly. Lord Jesus, as we come to Gethsemane, we know that we've come to a holy place. So we pray for your spirit, that we may hear your voice, that we may see ourselves, and most of all, we would see you in your beauty and your glory. In your holy name, amen. So Matthew 26, verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. This is the night on which Jesus celebrated the Passover, the Last Supper with the disciples in the upper room. And after they had eaten, they sang a hymn, the Gospels tell us, and they went and crossed the brook Kidron into the Garden of Gethsemane. John 18 verse 2 tells us Jesus often went here with his disciples. So this was a familiar retreat for them amidst the busyness and the controversy of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. Maybe it had even been their custom most nights while they were in the city, that after dinner, in the cool of the evening, Jesus would take his disciples to this favoured place. And now in the quiet, under the shade of the trees, he would teach them, they would sing together, they would laugh together, they would weep together. There they had spent nights, many of them not unlike this one, praying together. But this night, of course, this night was different. And we really do not exactly know how much the disciples understood of what was to come in the hours that follow. It's hard to say. Certainly at the Last Supper, just moments before this scene, Jesus had made it plain to them that one of their number would betray him. So it is not a surprise, really, that there's a power of heaviness and sadness settled on the disciples that night. They have intuited, at least, if not fully understood, that this night was somehow the pivotal point upon which their master's ministry would hinge. And we all know, just as we've read, the story's most shocking feature is that three times, despite his entreaties, despite his pleading, despite his rebuke, they are asleep. And it is shocking to us in many ways, but Luke's account gives the reason for their sleepiness. Because Luke 22 verse 45 says, Jesus found them sleeping for sorrow. Sleeping for sorrow. And anyone who's been plunged into deep grief will know that what's something of what that is talking about. Sleeping for sorrow. It drains you, saps you of energy. There's no fatigue like the exhaustion of sorrow. So here they are, they're spent, they're really finished. At the end of their rope and amidst their sorrow, they cannot keep their eyes open. Matthew says their eyes were heavy. So they, they, they understood something of what was coming because grief had overtaken them. But whatever limited and doubtless muddled insight the disciples had, for Jesus this night was greater than any that had come before. Because on this night, Jesus knew that he stood on the lip of the abyss 
and he peered into the shadows to see all that waited for him as he descended down into it in the hours to come. The storm clouds of suffering had gathered over Jesus' head. The weight of his sin-bearing never felt heavier to him than at this moment. And as we wrestle with what is happening here, with what it means, I want to focus with you just on three things that I hope will help us understand a little of what's going on. First of all, the solitude of the Saviour, then the sadness of the Saviour, and finally as a way to interpret that, the submission of the Saviour. First of all, let's look at the solitude of the Saviour. In verse 36 in Matthew's account, we see that Jesus withdraws into the garden with his 11 remaining disciples. Judas had departed about the grim business of betrayal. Now, Jesus had taken all of them with him to Gethsemane and he commands eight of them to remain behind while he goes over there to pray. He, then he takes Peter and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, and he goes deeper into the garden with them. And then he asks them too to remain here and watch with him. And then finally, so you've got the eight, one place, then you have the three, and then finally Jesus himself goes further, alone, stepping into the gathering shadows of the evening to seek the face of God. One of the best books I know on the events leading up to the cross is called The Shadow of Calvary by Hugh Martin. It's an outstanding book and it's still available in paperback and I heartily recommend it to you. It's insightful and moving. And Hugh Martin, noticing the way that Jesus commands the eight and the three, he describes Jesus at this moment as, as like a general posting his tr troops strategically <clears throat> before he enters the deepest combat alone. It's, it's very strategic what Jesus is doing. Hugh Martin said, it's the captain of salvation making disposition of his forces for a battle in which the weapons of warfare should not be carnal, in which he himself should bear all the fire and the terror of the conflict. Whatever truth there is in that metaphor, as we read verses 37 and 38 of the growing trouble and the sorrow that begins to rack Jesus' mind and heart, we are meant to see Jesus marching step by step into the solitude, into the isolation, that his sufferings require. The work of securing our salvation could not be done in cooperation with the eight, nor even with the three. He had to go alone. He had to go alone. The gates into the valley of the shadow of death through which Jesus is called to pass only open for him. Only he is qualified to bear the burden of my sin, your sin. Only he can enter the crucible of divine judgment to make satisfaction for sinners. Only he, only he, can silence the verdict and the sentence of condemnation pronounced over us by being condemned in our place. You fear for the world, don't you? You fear for the world. They're trapped in sin. 
They, they say what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. But the only answer to that is Jesus. He is the only saviour. And he set his face resolutely to go to the cross. And by descending steps, we see him in Gethsemane marching into the doom. He left the eight, he left the three, and then he went alone. He left behind the eight, and then his dearest friends go down to the bottom step, but then he descended alone. And the measure of his isolation becomes apparent after he comes back to them, ironically enough, after each successive season of private prayer. What weight Jesus must have been carrying, the saviour of the world, the God-man, he would turn to his disciples, men who have proven again and again how weak and fickle and confused and prideful and inconstant they were. What weight must have been pressing on him that he would turn to them and ask them to pray with him. Now the disciples praying for one another, that makes sense. The disciples asking Jesus to pray for them, I can understand. But Jesus asking the disciples to pray for him? Does that not underscore the colossal burden that he bore, that he would ask them to intercede on his behalf? He felt the need of prayers, even of sinful, weak, ignorant men, so great was the weight. So he puts them strategically in their posts and says, watch and pray. I need you to pray. And now he comes back. Does he find them wrestling with God on his behalf? Does he even find them praying for one another? Does he even find them praying for themselves? There's no evidence. What he finds is a group of disciples dozing in the cool evening, unaware of how fierce the battle has been raging in the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see his rebuke in verse 40 and verse 41. So, could you not watch with me one hour? And yet it's tinged with kindness, with forbearance. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. He understands how fragile we are. Even in the garden, he's aware and filled with consideration and compassion for them. How our bodies and brains run out of steam, how we get distracted, how our constitutions betray our best intentions. He is not unable to sympathise with us in our weaknesses. The spirit is willing, he knows, though the flesh is weak. So Jesus is patient with them and he's wonderfully patient with us. Again he comes to them, again he comes to them. Yet we notice his patience is never indulgence and he still calls us, just as he calls the disciples to watch and pray. And sometimes there isn't I thought about this, that it's easy to get angry, it's easy to get confused, it's easy to get fearful, but he calls us to watch and pray. He knows that the best guard against temptation is to be praying, pleading with God, keeping short accounts with God, staying close to God in prayer. So watch and pray. Haven't been caught red-handed now, sound asleep, and been treated with such patience by Jesus. Surely, surely that's enough to stir them from their ignorance and to set their indifference aside and 
They'll be praying. He caught them red-handed. Surely now they would be praying. Well, no. The second time, what does he find? Still asleep. Mark's account hints at their shame. Mark says they didn't know how to answer him. They were ashamed. And then even a third time, even a third time he comes and they're still sleeping. Even as Judas is leading the soldiers into the garden to take the Saviour away by force. That's when he comes and says, sleep and take your rest later on. The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now let's just take that in for a moment. His command, his patience, his rebuke, his pleading failed to produce obedience. Just think about it with me for a minute. They failed to produce obedience, but he still doesn't abandon them. Isn't that beautiful? He still doesn't abandon them. Again, again he returns. Is that not so beautiful? He comes back to them again and again. And again, he is the only one who is awake, active, obedient, and interceding. And they're helpless and sleeping. Do we recognise ourselves here? I recognise myself here. How often have we returned like a dog to its vomit to that same sin? Over and over and over and over again and only to be met by the extraordinary patience of the Lord Jesus Christ, who does not abandon us any more than he didn't abandon the disciples that night. Thank God for Jesus, his patience, his love. Of all the nights on this night, knowing what was coming, we might have understood if he had walked away and left them behind, but he stayed with them in the face of their repetitive failure. Do you feel as you read how Jesus dealt with them, that's how he's dealing with you? Or will you let yourself go there? Not giving up on us. Not giving up on us, but calling us back to prayer. Not giving up on us, though we desert him time and time again. There is a sense in which the foolish sleepiness of the disciples finds its mirror in our own hearts. How wonderful to know that unlike us, Jesus never sleeps. Jesus never slumbers. And even right now, as we speak together, he's interceding for us. Do you know that? Yeah. Right now, he's interceding for us. Ever leaving to make, living to make intercession, watching over us. We who can't watch and pray for an hour, have you noticed that we've always got something that's more important to do than prayer? We've always got something that's more important to do than, 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 than to be about the Lord's business or whatever lessons we can learn for ourselves from the disciples' failure. The big point in the passage is, isn't to highlight the disciples, but to show us Jesus. The solitude of Jesus. Um, think about the great flocks of sheep and the lambs cared for by the shepherds in the Judean countryside. My wife and I were out for a walk the other morning and there was one Herdwick sheep all by itself. There was, no, there was, there was none, we, 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 we looked everywhere, we couldn't see any sheep. I had no idea how it was going to get back. But it made me think of Luke 15, 
And it, and, it, and it made me think of how, you know, how alone that sheep was. You felt for it. But if you think about the great flocks of sheep that would have been gathered on the Judean countryside, the hillside, as Passover draws near, some of the best would be separated and out from the flock until finally one is selected, that perfect pastoral lamb, and taken by the high priest's hand for sacrifice, for slaughter. And that's what's happening here. At their Passover celebration in verse 31, Jesus, while explaining to them what was about to come, quoted Zechariah 13, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And that's beginning to happen here. Here is the good shepherd, the lamb of God, the spotless lamb of God, separated from the flock, led alone to the slaughter. None, none could go with him. None could endure the baptism with which he is about to be baptised. None can bear the curse or make payment for sin, only Jesus. And that's the first thing I want us to reflect on, to meditate on and give thanks for, the solitude of the Saviour. But secondly, the sorrow of the Saviour. In verse 37, Mark remarks that when Jesus took Peter, James and John aside, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Luke tells us that he was in such agony that his sweat became like great drops of blood. And in Matthew 26, Jesus tells the three, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Now why is Jesus overtaken with such a depth and intensity of sorrow that it feels like a mortal wound to his heart? Just think about this. Have you, you know, it's good to think about this. Why? Well, surely he was grieved. Certainly he would have been grieved to know that one of the twelve was his betrayer. And he knows that the failures of the disciples here at Gethsemane are a beginning of their desertions and their denials and abandonment. And he knows that he will be rejected and beaten and made to suffer unspeakable torments in his own body. He knows that he will die a cruel, shameful death on the cross. That contributes to his sorrows, but the gospel records intend, records intend more. They want us to see, by showing us Jesus' agony of soul, something of the spiritual sufferings that Jesus bore. He was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, not mainly because of the abandonment of his friends, nor of the betrayal of Judas, nor the denial of Peter, nor the abuse of the crowds not even because of the bodily torment of the cross. He is a man of sorrows because he was the sinless man of God, son of God, made to be sin for us. Why should that so wound his heart? Why should his sin-bearing work so grieve him? Well, let me point you again to Hugh Martin. He explains this idea brilliantly by contrasting the sorrow that Jesus felt by bearing our guilt, contrasting that with the joy we sinners feel at bearing his righteousness. Think about it. We do not deserve to be accepted before the throne of God, but we are. Not because we are righteous, but because of the righteousness of Christ reckoned to our account when we believe the gospel. The Father counts us righteous for Jesus' sake. And when you grasp that, the wonder of it, the freedom of it, it is a source of great joy. Sinners received and welcomed as righteous in the sight of God. 
with no righteousness of their own, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But Hugh Martin reminds us that that is only one side of the equation. Christ's righteousness reckoned to us leads to joy, unspeakable joy in the hearts of believing sinners. But the opposite is always also true. The sin, the guilt of wicked sinners was imputed to Christ. My sin. Just think about your sins for a moment. My sins, the shame of them, the secret nature of them. My guilt reckoned by God as if it belonged to Jesus. He was counted guilty and condemned, even though he knew no sin. Now, if Christ's righteousness counted to me, brings a sinner like me unspeakable joy, how much more will my sin counted to Christ bring the one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, unspeakable grief. Unspeakable grief. It should cause us to pause before we sin. That my sin caused the Saviour grief. The agony of sorrow that overtakes Jesus is the agony of the sin-bearer who sins, who sees and feels with a depth and a clarity that he has never known before. Something of what it means for him who knew no sin became sin for us. Everything in him recoiled against the condemnation he knows he does not deserve. But I do, and so do you. So here at Gethsemane, the jagged edge of my betrayal, the sharp point of my lust, my doubt, those idols, sink more deeply into his holy heart. And the wonder of it all is he doesn't shrink from it. He didn't walk away. He didn't refuse it, he chose it. So the solitude of the Saviour at Gethsemane, the sorrow of the Saviour, but the last thing I want us to see is the submission of the Saviour. We sense that we tread on holy ground, sacred ground at Gethsemane, never more so as we eavesdrop on our Saviour's prayer, his communion with the Father on the brink of Calvary. Overtaken by sorrow, Agony of soul at the point of death, what does he pray? My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The righteous Christ shrinks back from being condemned as the embodiment of sin. His soul, his mind, naturally appropriately recoils at being damned, as it were, under the wrath and curse of God at the cross. When the simple fact is, he is the only human in the whole of history who never transgressed God's law. He never entertained a wicked thought. He never once even so much inclined towards sin. And likewise, his body, his infinite, weak, weary human body, rightly retreats from the Roman lash, the thorns on his brow, the nails in his hands, the nails in his feet. So he cries with good reason. He would not be a man were he to say anything else than this. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That isn't disobedience. This is a demonstration of his 
human nature and his perfect righteousness. Both. Because how else should perfect holiness react to the prospect of being treated as only sin should be treated? That's what he saw. If there is any other way. But as the flood of horror rises within him, he never lifted his voice against God. He never said, you're unjust. He never said, I do not deserve this. He does not bargain for his life. If you save me from these sufferings, I will do even more for you. He doesn't abandon his trust under a torrent of disbelief. How can there be a God who would bring me into such suffering? But these are the ways that we respond to trials. Accusation, bargaining, unbelief. Praise the name of Jesus that he is not like us. Praise the name of Jesus that he is not like us. We, fallen, fickle, sinful, but our saviour, the righteous one, the spotless lamb of God, comes to God even here as Abba Father. You are mine and I am your child and I trust you still. So he cries, not my will but yours be done. That is the measure of our saviour's obedience. And it should move us to worship. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. That is what's going on right here. Our salvation. There is a sense that our salvation hangs on that phrase, that sentence. Not my will, but yours be done. Isn't it interesting that the name Gethsemane means oil press? You know what that's it? Gethsemane means oil press. And the garden was probably a grove of olive trees. And somewhere in it, there was a press for making olive oil you know, in the middle of the garden. So it's an apt title for the sight of Jesus' agonies here. Because in Gethsemane, the crushing action of the press of the will of God for our deliverance began to bear down on Jesus with a weight that he had not experienced before. Here, the full cost of the work given to him in eternity by the Father becomes apparent, not just to his understanding, but to his senses, his affections, his emotions. Jesus, fully man, in his human nature, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put us him to grief, Isaiah 53, verse 10. And in that moment, as the olive press crush of God's will is bearing down on him, he bends the knee and says, I will do what you have asked, not mine, but your will be done. Did you know that salvation is by works, that you were in fact saved by works, that your salvation absolutely depends on perfect obedience? It really does, just not yours. Just not your obedience. We are the disciples asleep in the garden. Our best efforts at obedience are always inadequate. We need to be saved by Jesus' works, by his obedience. No one else can do it but him. And all of our hope, all of the joy, all of the peace, all of the wonders of salvation that we enjoy today, 
all of our security, our eternal home, our, the benefits of being saved, rests on this one fact, this one foundation. And it is the strongest foundation in the world that Jesus obeyed for me. That Jesus obeyed for you, if you trust him. He obeyed for you. He looked into the vortex of suffering and then loving you, he chose it. That is the gospel. He looked into the vortex of suffering and chose it because he loves to do the will of the Father and he loves to save sinners. He chose it. He embraced it. He said, there is nothing in the cross that I want, nothing that I love in it, but I obey to the point of death, to the death of the cross, Father, because I am her saviour, I am his saviour, and I love them. And because I love them, I will obey for your glory and their everlasting good. The solitude of Jesus, the sorrow of Jesus, the submission of Jesus. He embraced the will of the Father. It was the will of the Lord to crush him so you might live. So great is his love. May the Lord bless the word for his glory Amen. and for our eternal good. Amen.